guest today is Representative Jim Himes. Welcome to Things I Didn't Learn in School. So much going on. So happy to have you here. Great to be with you, Paul. When I initially asked you about this, I wanted to talk about service in government, what it's like to serve in Congress, and we'll get to all those things. But we're in a very scary moment. So bring us into your thoughts, thoughts of Congress and the leadership of the United States about what's going on in Ukraine beyond the very obvious, which is, you know, there's a horrific loss of life. It's a, you know, it looks like an invasion on par with 1939 or what Iraq War One was. What are you thinking? I've a whole bunch of sub questions beyond that. Yeah, no, it's a, it's it's obviously the topic on everybody's minds as we you know wake up every day and just see the devastation that you know the destroyed buildings and the people streaming across uh, the Polish border, refugees, a million refugees. So you know, a couple things to say about. It. There's a lot to unpack. Number one, uh, just unbelievable savagery and brutality and stupid savagery and brutality on the part of the Russians, right? Um, you know, I, I, I never expected to see an unprovoked land war in Europe. I mean, this this is the kind of stuff that happened back in 1890, you know, and, and, uh, right. and there, there's a reason why it doesn't happen, right? I mean, and, and this is sort of thing too, right? I mean, Putin has painted himself into just a terrible corner. Uh, you know, best case scenario, best case scenario for Vladimir Putin right now is that his economy is in wreckage. And by the way, we should talk a little bit about the remarkable unity of the West in imposing sanctions and that kind of stuff. But his best case scenario is that he's got an economy in wreckage. He's got the oligarchs who are the only people who really care, he cares about, who are, you know, pissed off because their, you know, yachts are being confiscated and their money's being uh, frozen in Switzerland and the United States. Uh, and he's got, you know, pick your number, but dozens, maybe hundreds of of of, of dead Russians coming home every single week because thousands you know, the Ukrainians are saying. Uh, yeah, no, in aggregate, but I'm talking about sort of on an everyday, every week basis, because let's imagine that he sort of manages to put troops in, into Kiev, into the other cities. That doesn't mean he controls them, right? I mean, the American right. military saw what happens with urban warfare in places like Fallujah. That's brutal, brutal stuff. So, I mean, his best case scenario is everything that he hoped wouldn't happen. A united NATO, a Ukraine fighting back, you know, a united United States. We haven't seen that in a while. Um, and then, of course, the, I mean, the other story here is just the remarkable, remarkable resilience and leadership of, of, of the Ukrainians. It's a, not only they've been remarkable, but it's also exposed just the decay inside the, the Russian military, you know, that a, that a very, very small army could have stopped, you know, thousands of tanks and stuff. It's just a remarkable thing to see. So give us a little bit more insight into the what members of Congress are learning about the military thing, because I'm not a military expert, but obviously it's a key component in this. We're funneling tons of arms. The Russians are attacking with this unbelievable savagery. What is your understanding about how this balance works out in terms of the Ukrainians' ability to, to withstand? And then play out a little bit various different scenarios, because it seems like one scenario is, is the weapons that we're giving them and the Ukrainians' bravery is enough. And then Putin has used chemical weapons before. He's threatened nukes. He's backed into a corner. So that's one thing. Or there's another scenario where it's not enough, these weapons and the val and the and the, and the valentry. And Ukraine has the ability to ask for help. And the word from the Biden administration so far has been we cannot go to a NATO no-fly zone. Just talk through those scenarios. Yeah. Yeah. So 
again, it's been remarkable. Uh, you know, Vladimir Putin's statement yesterday, notwithstanding, this was never in the plan, right? I right. mean, if you look at the way the Russians were configured, they thought that Ukraine was going to roll over in hour number two, right? Yeah. And it didn't matter that they couldn't supply fuel to their vehicles or that, you know, they their, their vehicles were old, the tires were falling apart, the, right. the, 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 the troops themselves didn't even know what, what where they were going or what they were doing. So this was not in the plan. And, you know, the Ukrainians have been shown to, first of all, have remarkable leadership and, and remarkable capability. You know, there's a lesson in here, right? Um, at the end of the day, you can't avoid military math and physics, right? If Putin keeps grinding here, the numbers are such that he's going to keep pushing into the country. It's going to continue to be absolutely brutal. But there's a difference between a Ukrainian who's fighting for his home and his kids and his wife and a confused Russian conscript who hasn't been told what he's doing, who's now being asked to shoot at people who may be his friends. I mean, right. this is one of the things we forget. You know, Ukrainians and Russians are very socially close, familially close. So that's that's point one. Um, you know, to address the issue, and I'm, I'm getting the question a lot, you know, for, for obvious reasons, when you look at the brutality, you say, we should step in, we should do something. And, and that's a totally understandable human instinct, right? It's, 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 it's why people still look back on Rwanda and say, why didn't we intervene in the massacre of innocents there? There's a little bit of a lesson in Somalia. Um, you know, uh, the, 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 the then administration's decision to go into Somalia, which resulted in, in, in just a horrible thing. In the case of, in the case of Russia, and this is, this is really serious stuff, because one of the risks here is that this escalates into something much larger and much more brutal. Um, a lot of people say no-fly zone, including, including the Ukrainian president. Um, and I understand why you look at the brutality and say we should just shut down the skies. But it's not Iraq. It's not Afghanistan, right? Let's, let's be clear that a no-fly zone starts with protecting our pilots. And so that means we're taking out anti-aircraft batteries, not just in Ukraine, but in Russia. So now the United States Air Force is dropping bombs on Russian troops inside Russia and, mm -hmm. on, and on Russian troops inside Belarus. So now the United States has gone to war with Russia. Those words ought to sort of take, have us all take a deep breath. We're, we're seeing how bad the Russian military is, but don't imagine that war doesn't mean hundreds, thousands of dead Americans. And when the United States is bombing Russian troops inside Russia, don't imagine that we're not sliding very, very close to the prospect of a nuclear exchange. We're already worried about Vladimir Putin. He appears to be isolated. He appears to not be thinking rationally. You know, do we want a guy whose finger is on the nuclear trigger, who can basically wipe the world out, who may be acting irrationally to have yet in another excuse for savage behavior? Got it. That's that's a helpful perspective. I, I wasn't aware of the... Uh the bombing the batteries it makes total sense so the sanctions we basically dropped a financial bomb on russia earlier this week it's destroyed the value of money the banking system rushing living standards have have plummeted in very measurable ways there's obviously a step we could go beyond this which is cutting off the cash flow itself which relates to fuel exports particularly uh natural gas and some of their neighbors are literally 100 percent reliant and even the u.s imports some 
And then there's obviously the more you begin to talk about that, there's infrastructure costs, there's inflation implications, there's economic implications. How do you think about that as an additional source of leverage to the pros and cons there? Well, um, it's been a remarkable thing. Um, I happen to have been at the Munich Security Conference uh, about two weeks ago. Um, mm. And at the time, the new German chancellor was saying, you know, not sure about Nord Stream 2. It's important to Germany. He said, and his foreign minister said, um, uh, you know, we would never provide weaponry. Uh, they sort of brought up the, yeah. the specter of World War II and say the German people just don't provide weapons in European wars for, for obvious historical reasons. And then we wake up a week ago, and then the first thing that happens is they shut down Nord Stream 2, and they say that they're going to provide weapons to the Ukrainians, right? The Swiss, another amazing example, right? The Swiss, for hundreds of years, neutrality has been sort of at the very center of their, of their, of their system of national values. And they came right around and said, no, we're going to help. We're going to help here. Um, you know, the Japanese, here's another startling example. You know, there is no country on the planet more concerned about nuclear weapons for obvious reasons than Japan. And Japan has said, hey, we're open to the idea of stationing American uh, nuclear weapons on our territory. I mean, this is just a world that we did not imagine, a world of unity, a world of, of you know, with the exception of the Chinese and a couple of other countries saying this will not stand. And as a result, as you point out, the devastation to the economy of Russia is going to be severe. Now, obviously, what we hope is that that causes some combination of public outcry, which we're already seeing in Russia, and elites, the oligarchs, the generals, and others to say, we have to stop this. This is madness. Yeah, and that's where it gets really tricky, right? I mean, even our sort of best intelligence people don't have, uh, you know, a, a superb understanding of the kind of thinking that happens inside, you know, closed doors inside the Kremlin. So, um, but, you know, the task I think we have in front of us right now, Paul, is the, the big escape, of course, is that, that Putin has is the fact that um, Europe relies on his country for natural gas, and it's early March. They need that energy. Their industries need that energy. And I'm sorry that that's a true fact, but it's a true fact. And of course, the other bit of it is the Chinese. The Chinese, in a very cynical move, after generations of opposing people messing around in other people's countries, you know, because they need that Russian energy. So if we can find ways to shame the Chinese into getting themselves under the right side of history here, and if we can find ways to give the Europeans alternatives to Russian energy, we can we can continue to turn the screws on this guy. Why is it the solution a massive investment in liquefied natural gas terminals in Europe and shipping out of the out of North America uh, to get it there, which then turns the tables. Of course, it, it, it's it's not something you can flip a switch and do overnight like sanctions, but it's probably something you could do in 24 months, maybe 12 months or something if it was an absolute emergency like it is now. What are your thoughts on something like that? Yeah, you're, 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 you, you put your finger on it. Um, we have a tomorrow problem, right? I mean, it's cold in Germany right now. <laughs> and you'd love to be able to turn off the, the, the taps, but you know, investment in, in more liquid natural gas terminals, it, you know, that's a multi-year problem. So we have a tomorrow problem that we can partly solve by, you know, getting our allies in the Persian Gulf. I'm thinking of Qatar and others who have a lot of gas to, you know, to, to divert, divert shipments to, to Europe. Um, we can help in that. We export energy. We're, we're a net energy exporter. We can help in that, but we can't solve the tomorrow problem perfectly. But there's a medium term problem, as you point out. And, and this takes us to a world where we're balancing some really important things. We're balancing the clear need 
to not have uh, Putin have this kind of leverage over the West. And, and, you know, this is not a new game, right? I mean, I'm old enough to remember the 1970s when OPEC decided to hurt American consumers, and they did it yeah. through the oil yeah. embargo. So, you know, shame on us for not learning better uh, back, in, <laughs> back in the 70s. But, you know, clearly we need to reduce uh, the world's, because we're not terribly reliant, but the world's reliance on some pretty bad regimes. I mean, remember the other, you know, another big exporter is Iran. You know, I mean, how, how much leverage do we want these guys to have? But in the long run, of course, we're also balancing the, the demands of us doing something about climate change. So, you know, my Republican friends are making a lot of hay about like, well, let's start the XL pipeline. It's like, well, first of all, that's a multi-year process. And secondly, come on, come on. There's absolutely a lesson to be learned here about, about um, you know, weaning ourselves. From, and, and, and we got to be serious about this, right? You know, we're not shutting down natural gas and oil around the world, you know, tomorrow. We're just not doing that. But, but it does point to two things, the need to be more independent from some pretty bad regimes, and importantly, to move to the sustainable sources that the Russians and the Iranians and OPEC can't shut off. And, and you know, we're doing that. We're just not doing it fast enough. Take us a little bit behind the scenes. Uh, it seems like there's a notable shift in approach in this conflict than um, uh, previous ones. I sort of think Gulf War One, it was very multilateral. And then there was a period of time where it was sort of, for lack of a more sophisticated term, our way or the highway. So the first Iraq, then Afghanistan, et cetera, pulling people along. This one seems to be a different approach from the Biden administration much more trying to pull people along. The UN vote was not something that I'd been expecting, but then when it happened, it thought to be like, it's a very notable thing, 141 countries coming out, which it seems to me weakens the conversation that it is the West out to get Putin. It is a multilateral response. How is that happening behind the scenes? Have you sensed a switch in how people and the lessons learned from the foreign policy errors the United States has learned? Great, great question. Um, there's a there's a galactic brain deep think answer to this, and then there's some more kind of tactical stuff that I want to mention. The deep think galactic answer is. The world's opinion is pretty smart, right? Um, so you made reference to the when when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait and George Bush the first did the hard work of pulling together an alliance saying, look, this is an example of a brutal dictator moving into an independent and vulnerable country. Now, it just so happened that that country also produced a lot of oil. So yeah, there was that. But anyway, the world looked at that and said, yeah, that's not a good thing and um, joined us uh, in remarkable unity then you get the second George Bush, who, based on faulty intelligence, um, invades Iraq. Uh, again, Saddam's a bad guy, but he was not a mortal risk to the United States or to the West. And the world kind of figured that out. And there's a, you know, there's a reason that the French were hesitant to join us in that, right? Um, you'll, you'll recall, you know, the Republicans were whooping it up about renaming French fries because the dar darn French weren't with us. And, you know, the Turks weren't really with us on that. They didn't let us use the Insulik Air Base. And there, you know, that in the end, you know, that that war turned out to be a massive strategic mistake. So the world kind of got it right there. It's you know, it's sort of uncomfortable for an American to say that because we believe we've got it all figured out. But and and this time around, of course, is precisely well, it's not precisely, but it's similar to what George. Bush the first did. The world looked at, at, at something right out of the 1890s, you know, of a, of a European power deciding it just because it could 
to violate somebody else's sovereignty. And you know what? If you're Poland, if you're Germany, you say this is not a world that we want to go back to. You know, we 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 forget in the United States, but I mean, it was hundreds of years in Europe where just every year there was war on the continent and people were dying, innocent people were dying. So that's the galactic. You know, the world is is often right about this stuff. Um, and uh, but you know, dr drill down into the specifics of 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 what's going on, and and you know, you you see something you haven't seen for a long time, which is a remarkable unity, which comes out of understanding the threat, but also came out of the hard work of President Biden and Tony Blinken, you know, just making the phone calls, just showing the intelligence, really doing the hard work, in many ways opposite of what the previous administration did. You know, I mean, you know, President Trump didn't let a day go by without making fun of our of our NATO allies who are now, you know, working with us on uh, encountering this dictator. Right. Um, and so there's a real lesson to be learned um, uh, on the part of Americans there of how important these alliances, they may not seem important on a Monday, but there's, you know, stuff could happen where on Thursday, they're really critical to doing what's right um, for the world. Talk about the information war a little bit. They uh, then we'll sort of turn broadly to Congress and your experience and what lessons there are for listeners there. But one of the things that's notable in as Russia sort of runs backward in time is shutting down all of the outside information sources. And I, you know, I noticed it firsthand. I'm married to a Russian. My mother-in-law lives in Moscow, and I speak with her. And her information has gotten narrower and narrower and narrower. And it's tragic. It's total brainwashing. So, what do you think is in the power of this coalition to try to alter the information perspective within Russia, which is part of where he's getting his support, even though he's obviously arresting a lot of people too? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think what you're seeing inside Russia where, you know, if you are a opponent of Vladimir Putin, you, you might not just be arrested. You might get thrown off the roof of a building, right? You know, yes. I mean, this is, it doesn't get any more dangerous than that. And despite that, in city after city after city, you're seeing protests. And why is that? That's because um, you, you really can't. I mean, unless you're North Korea, which is, you know, just a, in a different century, you know, Russians have access to Twitter. You know, and it, I'm not sure you can. I think that that. that's been cut off in the last 24 hours. Uh, that 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 may be the case, but um, but but the point is, I mean, if you're if you have a cell phone and you're near the Russian border, I mean, St. Petersburg yep. is whatever 50 miles from from Tallinn, Estonia. You know, if you have cell phone service, it's just really hard in this modern world to keep information from penetrating any country, much less a country with 11 time zones, right? I mean, it's the biggest right. geographical country on the planet. It's just very hard to do. And, you know, the Russians of all people have, have developed a, <laughs> some real resistance to propaganda. I mean, you know, you look at you look at the fun that they used to make of Pravda, where, you know, industrial plans proceed apace. You know, the, the strong Russian economy is, 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 you know, it's a little bit like Vladimir Putin yesterday saying, the war is going according to plan. I mean, this just right. echoes right out of, you know, 1960s nonsense propaganda. And so I think the Russians sort of get it. And the, the issue is more about the risk of dissent and being arrested or worse. But, you know, there's another, and maybe we'll get to this in the topic, though, stepping away from the technology of communications. You know, we have the same problem here in the United States, right? Yes. I mean, I'm in politics and, and we're at a point where Americans, particularly the ones that are politically engaged, are no longer interested in making, and I'm, I, I, look, I'm painting in broad strokes here, but, right. but, you know, there's a significant portion of our population that has stopped thinking about politics. They've stopped evaluating different facts as they come in. They're just engaged in a Yankees Red Sox fight. They're engaged yeah. in a religious war where facts yeah. are only interesting in as much as they support your preconceived view. And I think 
And by the way, the Russians are partly are, are partly complicit in, in getting us right. to that point with their propaganda in our country. But, um, you know, it worries me that maybe the same sort of tribalism exists in Russia, that you've got a meaningful portion of the population there that despite the fact that they got crushed in the General Assembly, despite the fact that their economy is in ruins, they're going to they're going to believe, regardless of all facts, that they're in the right and the rest of the world's in the wrong. Last question on Russia, then we'll turn to the, the you know, your unbelievable experience in Congress. So if you were to step back from this thing, forecast how you think, and I understand that's highly unpredictable, nobody can really know, but based on this, you evaluate all these odds, what would be your most likely scenario that you think happens, you know, in, in, in coming months? Yeah, yeah, we boy, we've been surprised. We 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 were surprised by by uh, the reaction to the invasion. So there's been a lot of surprises. So I say this with a lot of humility, but you know, at some level, you just as remarkable as the Ukrainians have been, you just sort of can't defy military gravity for a very long period of time. So it's sort of hard to imagine that over time, with great losses, the Russians are going to get. They're going to surround Kiev. They're going to surround the other cities. They'll be able to send troops in. Those troops will get killed by Molotov cocktails and Ukrainian resistance and Western weapons. But you're going to have this grinding situation, a little bit like what you saw in the cities of, of Iraq a number mm -hmm. of years ago. Um, you know, I guess you sort of control them, but not really. Um, and the cost of doing so is huge. So now we're in this terrible grinding situation. The Russian public is suffering terribly because of the sanctions. And then the question is, and then that can go on for a while, right? I mean, Putin has a security service that can, can keep control of his own country for a period of time. That can go on for a while. But the question is, over time, do the Russians, and there's a lot of Russians, and there's a lot of Russian elites who have a lot of money on the table here, do they finally decide what's the what's the win here? You know, what, what you know, NATO is now expanding because of Vladimir Putin. The Ukrainians right. now hate the Russians because, like, what's the win? And at that point, I wonder if they don't scratch their heads and say, "My God, we've got to, we've got to replace our leadership." Let's pivot to your time in Congress. Basically, what's it like as a job, and particularly what it's like now? Because it seems that if we step back and look at the world, it seems like there really is this intense competition and doubt between what I generally describe as sort of a more open system and a more closed system. And then some of the attributes of a more closed system that you were just referring to, the propaganda, the lack of ability to assess information objectively, to have debates, et cetera. All that stuff seems to be getting more present in kind of a scary way. I mean, if, I don't want to idealize what's been in the past. There's been lots of dark periods in the U.S. past too as well. But it seems like it's like, what is it actually like day to day to serve in Congress? And particularly, what is it like against that backdrop of this sort of intense competition between, I don't know what you describe it as, populism and coherence? Yeah, you know, it's evolved in the dozen plus years I've been doing this, right? When I started this, um, first of all, we were in a moment, a brief moment of remarkable um, optimism in this country. Uh, I'll never forget sort of January of 2009 when the country inaugurated his first black president. Yeah. And, and it didn't last long because, you know, party politics reasserted themselves. But I think the country thought, wow, you know, given our history, this is really a remarkable moment. Um, and then, of course, that gave way to, you know, a brutal economic meltdown that was underway at the time and, and, and all that. But um, and, and by the way, it led to a racial reaction, too. I mean, there's no escaping that fact. Uh, so it used to be much more that 
you know, the party fight was one that you had on TV, but, you know, you, you saw your Republican friends at the end of the day, and it had a little bit of a kabuki theater quality about it, meaning that, you know, behind closed doors, people were a lot closer than they were when they were, you know, sitting on a panel on CNN or on Fox. And, and you experienced that personally? Oh, absolutely. In other words, even at your time that there would be this vitriol during the day, but that you might have a beer with these people at night and be like, listen. Uh, yeah. And, and I would actually say that it, it wasn't vitriol. I mean, we go back and look at news clips from 12 years ago, but, um, you know, it started a long time ago. You know, the old timers sort of point to Newt Gingrich as the guy who kind of took our politics from disagreement to war. You know, it mm -hmm. was just, you know, it, it, this, it, it, things weren't said and done in the service of finding compromise, which, which requires aggressive disagreement and negotiation, but things were done in the service of winning elections, which meant that it, you had an interest in in making your opponent out not just to be wrong, but to be evil, you know, to be un-American. Mm -hmm. You know, look at look at the way the right wing describes Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez today. You know, right. and Alexandria, you know, okay, she's well out there on the left, but she's she, let's take her health care view. She's for single payer health care, right? Um, by the way, we have single payer health care in this country. It's called Medicare. Um, right. And by the way, what she proposes. AOC proposes for healthcare in the United States is way to the right of what they have in the United Kingdom, in which the Conservative totally. Party in the United Kingdom defends the National Health Service, where all right. doctors work for the government. AOC is not proposing that. But my point is that you know she's proposing, yeah, for our politics, it's kind of out there on the left, but she's proposing something which is very much inside the bounds of the way the West does their healthcare. And yet the voices on the right would have you believe that she's a traitor. Um, and uh, that she's just exotically un-American. And the problem with that is that what that does is it gets Americans to stop thinking about something that's hard to think about, which is what, what do we want our healthcare system to look like in the future and gets you tribal. It gets you tribal. Again, it doesn't, when you're tribal, it doesn't matter what the facts are. You know, you're never going to convince a Red Sox fan to love the Yankees because it's not a rational right. calculus. And so what has happened and this, this has been accelerated, obviously, by Donald Trump, who, you know, every day, all day was about stirring up Americans' fears, racial fears, you know, class resentment, uh, et cetera. Um, it's taken our politics to a place where it has nothing to do with good conversations about policy and has everything to do with who can show that they're most on the most on the tribe. Um, and that makes it really hard to govern the country. It makes it really hard to have personal relationships. And you know what? It leads to things like January 6th. You know, I was there. Right. I was in the chamber. I saw I remember it. looking at your Twitter feeds being just shocked by yeah. that. Yeah. And there's there's two ways to look at it which which feel like at odds but are both true. These were some very awful people doing a terrible awful thing that will be one of the mm. ugliest images in American history for centuries. They were also the kinds of folks that you meet in a in a Starbucks in, you know, Charleston, right. West Virginia. These weren't right. Yeah, there were a few proud boys and three percenters, but these were the folks that go to church in, you know, in, in Western Virginia. And they were so inculcated with this brutal lie that when they did this terrible thing, they thought they were doing the right thing. And, and I tell you, we our democracy's survival depends on us backing away from that atmospheric. And so when you speak with colleagues, I don't know that you still have beers with them and you basically share that perspective with them, what's the rebuttal to you off the off camera, you know, when they're just chatting? Yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating question. Cause, cause let, let me tell you this. I mean, I, I had to do a lot of thinking about how I was going to work with Republicans after January 6th. And 
is sort of a great emotional cost to myself. I said, you know what? My job is not personal catharsis. It's not to feel uh, righteous. It's not to make a political point. My job is to get stuff done for my constituents. So I'm going to do what I need mm -hmm. to do to get stuff done for my constituents, even if I have to do a lot more bipartisan stuff than might otherwise feel comfortable. So what I what I do day to day is I don't um, I, I won't do anything with the relatively small um, you know, jackbooted caucus, you know, the Lauren Bobarts, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Madison Cawthorns, the people who I know don't begin to understand the constitution that they're sworn to uphold, who don't begin to understand the concepts of, you know, uh, of, of democracy, who would love to see our country turned over to a dictator, preferably named Donald Trump. I don't, I won't, I won't go into an elevator with those people. The good news is they're, 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 they're relatively few. The much larger group and this is the, the interesting fact that they group. exist <laughs> is kind of, I mean, you're in a room with them, right? I mean, you're going to work, so to speak, when you guys are voting in bills or whatever. I mean, it must be kind of mind bending that aspect. I, I mean, the good news is that the, and, and let's just say there's maybe a dozen of them tops, the Gosars of the world, the ones who show up at white nationalist conferences, there's, there's a dozen of them, right? And they're not, they don't go to work, right? They're media personalities, right? Madison Cawthorn and Marjorie Taylor Greene are not proposing conservative ideas for healthcare, right? They're, they're, they're celebrities. Um, but your Republican buddies, what do they say about those people? Because they're giving them kind of free, I mean, listen, I'm not as inside as you are. From my perspective, it seems like they're not really stepping up and saying, I mean, Cheney is, but not saying this is, crazy. This is really scary. Yeah. So the rest of them fall into two categories, right? The one category are the ones who I really do consider fellow travelers. And the list is pretty mm -hmm. clear because they're the ones who voted to overturn the election after the violence of January 6th. Um, that's a problematic category. Uh, that's a scary category. And then there's a small but meaningful group of people who didn't vote to overturn the election. A lot of my friends on that side of the aisle are in that crew, right? Not not uh -huh. not by accident. And the the point is that both groups, um, uh, the ones who, in my opinion, sort of betrayed their oath of office by then voting to overturn the election after the violence of January 6th, and the ones who didn't, they are facing a very powerful force, which is that Donald Trump can end their careers. And it pains me that fewer of them haven't been willing to risk their careers the way Cheney and Kinzinger have, but I at least understand the gravitational pull of Donald Trump. It scares me. It really does. And and I, I to put these two conversations together, I pardon yeah. me for interrupting. If you compare the bravery of the Ukrainians to that type of cowardice over your career, I mean, the contrast is just stark. Yeah, no, and especially when you think about the fact that if you look at dictatorships, you know, dictatorships, whether you look at Stalin or Hitler or Pinochet, or I mean, name your name, your, and they're all different, but they have one common attribute, which is that the number of real true believers, you know, the hardcore Nazi, the hardcore Stalinist, yeah. the people who were just totally dedicated to Pinochet, relatively small in number. It's right. the folks who go along with it you know, who know better. In their hearts, they know they're doing something unethical or unconstitutional, but they go along with it because it's so risky to do otherwise. So in some ways, that's a that's a pretty scary group. Um, and one of the things that gets us out of this, and this we're kind of circling back to an earlier theme. Yep. Um, I'll tell you, Paul, I don't think about these guys without thinking about whether 
the left could wind up doing the same thing. I want to have the humility right, right. to believe that this is not unique to the Republican Party, because one of the ways you stave off dictatorship is by having humility to know that you might be capable of this too. Um, yeah, and there's signs of it on the left as well in different forms. You know, to go back, and I, I will resist... <laughs> I will resist uh, Nazi analogies to anything that is happening today because they're just not smart. But again, it's a it's a dictatorship you can look at. And, uh, you know, in the 1920s and 1930s, the Germans were some of the most advanced, educated people on the planet. And right. we should all have the humility to say, I'm not sure I would have been Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm right. not sure if it could happen there, it could happen anywhere. Exactly. So we need to have the humility to know that we're capable collectively of this kind of thing. And if you don't, if you don't sort of root yourself in that kind of humility, you'll never get out of the tribal warfare that we're in right now. Right. Talked about just the the mechanics again. You you mentioned getting things done. So it seems like if you so we started with international, then we got to Congress, zooming right down to Connecticut. So it seems like and some of the legislation that you've been uh, behind and that just talking with people here left, right, I think that there is really broad agreement for it. Let me just mention two things. One would be that mentally ill people have trouble getting automatic weapons. And another thing would be better infrastructure to get from Connecticut, you know, up and down the East Coast. So these seem like things that if I think about an ideal uh, system, like talk about areas where there's agreement with pretty much everybody I would be talking about. Those would be things. But then the actual progress to get them through the machine that you're a part of is challenged. So can you take us into a little bit about that? What what the what the practicality is of getting the sausage made or so something like that? Because it seems like there's these huge gaps. I mean, the thing I think about is, pardon me for asking such a long question, but there's a recognition that slavery is bad in the 19th century, and it takes almost 100 years to go from that concept to actual rules on the books that then begin to protect the rights in a meaningful way of African Americans, even despite constitutional amendments. So it's just basically this incredibly long time frame. Am I right? What's that like day to day? Describe to me how that process functions. Yeah, yeah. So let's take let's let's start where you started, which was uh, infrastructure and uh, and guns. Um, the racial issue is fascinating, and we could probably spend a solid hour on that. And by the way, we right. probably ought to invite some folks that aren't just white guys to be in that conversation. But but um but let's start with infrastructure and guns, where you started. Uh, and this is a point of optimism about where we are amidst a bunch of pessimism. Look, we had very strong bipartisan support for that infrastructure bill at a time that the Congress. This is after January six, where as polarized, we're as angry right. as ever. But you. You know, our, our system of government was finally able to recognize that we needed to make the biggest investment in national infrastructure since the 1950s. And we did that. Um, and look, it's going to take a few years for people to feel that, right? You know, bridges don't get rebuilt in a day. Um, but, you know, not only is it a massive investment in the, in the you know, the arteries of our economy and, and, uh, and all that that implies, uh, but it's forward looking, right? It, it, right? It's got money for uh, broadband infrastructure. You know, I mean, 50 years ago that nobody would know what those words mean today. Right. You know, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing right now and kids would not be learning in right. school a year ago. And so, so it's forward looking and, and we had strong bipartisan support and that was wonderful. Um, guns takes us to a different place where... Uh, and it's a sad place, right? Because the example you gave. Um, but just pardon me for a second on the intersection thing. But yes, that's great. 
but the gap between people recognizing, in other words, it was, it was, de- it, my perception was decades. And then it took basically one party control of all the key elements to get something through. Is, is that, and so what I'm talking about, the like when you would have conversations where things were more split, hey, you know, our bridges are falling down. This isn't a great thing. Can we agree on something? Why is that so tangled? Yeah. And in the end, of course, unlike the other big stuff that's gotten done in the decade, the Affordable Care Act, Dodd-Frank, the Trump tax reform, um, that was actually done on a bipartisan basis. Those other things weren't right. And, and, And by the way, that's a whole other topic of conversation. You know, we've gotten ourselves to a place where the only way we govern in a big way is through this crazy reconciliation process where we can bypass the need for 60 votes in the Senate. Well, you know, why don't we just go there and we can actually govern the country? But that's a that's another conversation. Um, but, uh, you know, infrastructure actually had strong bipartisan support. It got the 60 votes it needed in the Senate, I think, because, you know, uh, it's one of those bread and butter issues that doesn't touch anybody's holy grail, unlike guns. Okay. Right. Um, okay. and, and just to sort of ca- counterpoint that, you know, how does a democracy fail to implement universal background check, which has the support of more right. than ninety percent of the population, including right. most Republicans? Right. Right. Um, that just shouldn't be true in a democracy. Exactly. Right? But the reason it's true is one, our system has powerful undemocratic things. There's nothing democratic about the United States Senate, right? I mean, you know, a minority of Americans can stop or can stop legislation in the in the United States Senate. That's not really. Uh, you know, our system is not set up to to do always what the majority wants, and we could argue about whether that's good or bad. But um, and then, of course, and this is in some ways more important. Um, you know, guns like immigration uh, are cultural t- touch points for conservatives, and um, when you say the word gun, uh, what they hear is the slippery slope. You know, okay, gun, you're coming to take them away, aren't you? No, no, we're not. We're we're just we're just trying to make sure that everybody gets background check. But yeah, then you're going to come and take them away because you're a gun grabber. And again, it descends into this tribal cultural thing where, you know, if you're a rootin' tootin' red state American, well, you're not going to compromise one iota on, on guns. Um, right. and, and there's a lot of things like that. Immigration has become that kind of issue for Republicans. There's probably some stuff on my side of the aisle, you know, proposed, for example, reforming Social Security or Medicare, and you're going to be met with, um, let's just not say a constructive response, right? touch on the Senate, I've heard constitutional scholars say that part of the reasons for the struggles that we're having, there's obviously many things, but one element to it is a little bit of a constitutional crisis in the sense that the Senate, when the structure was set up, they weren't envisioning that such a large percentage of the population would live in cities and so few of them would live in rural areas. And so the way the Senate is set up right now, it's disproportionately representing the rural vote which then creates struggles moving through legislation, like guns would might be an example of it, but the Supreme Court would be another one. And then some of these scholars will go on and say, well, the, that you know the solution to this is a constitutional amendment, et cetera. So that's that's a huge topic. And, but briefly, your thoughts on that? Well, so the antecedents of of the um, undemocratic aspects of our system are complicated. Um, A lot of them are rooted in our founders' fear of the mob. Um, 
you know, and 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 rightly so. I mean, they they were looking back at uh, at, at demagogues in in ancient Greece who, you know, and they they wanted some controls on majority control. And of course, they were de- they were dealing with a very different population, right? It was a population that was uh, didn't have high levels of literacy and education, et cetera. So part of it was fear of the mob. A lot of it, quite frankly, was designed to protect the slave states, right? They were very yeah. conscious of the fact that they didn't want. Massachusetts and New York with their very large populations um, ending the slavery that allowed their economies to flourish. So it's a it's a nasty mix of, of things that, that that created these anti-majoritarian systems in our government. But so what do we do about that? Um, number one, we don't dismiss the need to protect minorities, uh, you know, whatever they may be. Um, the founders weren't wrong about making sure there are some mechanisms, including the Bill of Rights, by the way, to keep the majority from trampling the rights of the minority. But some of this stuff doesn't require a constitutional amendment. You know, the filibuster. Um, I, I, I'm an institutionalist, so I, it took me a long time to get here. And, and, and I promise you I'm going to stay here when my party is in the minority in the Senate. But the idea that a modern developed country should require a supermajority to get something done that's not true in the United Kingdom. It's not true in most developed countries. Um, you know, uh, we should just do away with it. And um, and not just because parties will move faster to get their stuff done. I'm very conscious of the fact that doing away with it will help Republicans too, but because um, we should just govern with majorities. And, and by the way, people like me should be held accountable for what we say. I mean, I can't tell you how often I listen to Democrats and Republicans say crazy things, knowing that there's no chance that they will ever become law because of the filibuster. You know, we shouldn't mm-hmm. be insulated from the, the consequences of our beliefs the way that filibuster does. So that's an example of something that we could just, you know, through rule changes, eliminate tomorrow uh, and would make this a much more democratic, small D country. You oversee the Intelligence Committee. And that's not oversee, you're a member of it. Yeah. There is a perception in the outside world about the enormous power of this. I spent a lot of time abroad and there's, there's a sense that the CIA and the National Security Agency is under every bush. And then, of course, it's a whole Snowden thing. So it, just practically, what, the, what is that actually like to oversee that? And what's the perspective on how it actually functions in practice? Yeah, great question. It, it gets at one of the most interesting parts of my job. Um, you're right. It's an immensely powerful organization, right? Um, the United States spends 80 billion-ish a year on its intelligence apparatus. That's more than the United Kingdom spends on its national security, military included. Right. It's a huge apparatus, very powerful, and it operates in secret. Um, we should be very concerned by that combination of words, right? right. <laughs> and, and that's why we have an intelligence committee, two intelligence committees. and let, let me throw out a couple of things that for many years of observing the intelligence community, I will tell you, um, first of all, the old kind of 1960s image of guys running around in trench coats trying to overthrow democratically elected governments. That's a very antiquated image, right? Um, the, the CIA is a remarkable collection of amazingly patriotic people who are doing their jobs, often in conditions of great risk, um, doing their best to abide by the law. Um, and that doesn't mean they don't make mistakes. Uh, that doesn't mean that you know they don't have their institutional interests, but it's my job to make sure that they operate inside the framework of the privacy protections and other things, the basic decency that we that we value as Americans. Um, the other thing I'll tell you is that we're when it comes to things like, you know, the trade-off between uh, security and privacy. And I'm not a subscriber to this very facile notion that, you know, if you trade uh, privacy uh, for security, you deserve neither. That's that, that's just not true on the ground. Um, 
you know, we are constantly in the process of figuring out who gets to see what information about us as Americans. And that has changed dramatically from the world where, you know, snooping used to mean opening your mail. And today it means calling up an internet service provider and saying, I want to see this guy's browsing history right, um, or other stuff. Um, and so we're constantly balancing the, the value, which is that Americans deserve uh, as a fundamental right privacy with the need to catch terrorists and child molesters and drug dealers. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, we're never going to settle on the right answer because um, at the end of the day, the right answer is what the American people think it should be. Mm. Um, and there are people who think that, you know, we should uh, not ever open anybody's mail, just to use a silly metaphor, and people who say, no, son of a gun, if you're going to catch a terrorist, by all means, open my mail. So, you know, in some ways, the Congress's job is to find the balance that is uncomfortably satisfying to as most, American, most Americans as possible, obviously consistent with the uh, uh, with the constitutional protections that we all enjoy. So what does that work actually mean? What are you doing there? Are you sitting there interviewing people? you discussing with your, I mean, that that's a sense of, I can read in the headlines that these things take place, but I just don't know what the day-to-day -day is like for you. Yeah, so the day-to-day, -day and, and then let me give you two specific examples of tough ones. Um, the day-to-day, -day, here's what happens. I do this every day in the Capitol, you know, down in the basement of the Capitol, we've got what's known as a SCIF, a secure compartment and information facility. And every day, the CIA, the NSA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, there's 17 organizations that make up the intelligence community. They show up and they tell us what they're doing. Uh, and when they've, when they've used a drone to kill a terrorist, they tell us about the strike. They tell us if innocent people were killed, how many weapons were expended. They, they, they get us into the guts of what they're doing every single day, particularly around those things that are that are controversial, like lethal action, surveillance, that kind of thing. Um, and you know, we're not in the chain of command, so we can't say, no, you can't do that, but we can say, hey, we are uncomfortable uh, with that activity. And if you don't change that activity, we're cutting your budget next time around. And we do a lot of that, we do a lot of that. Sometimes you can't see it because the intelligence budget, of course, has a classified annex, but we do a lot of saying, no, we are not comfortable. Um, with that. And if you keep doing it, we're going to shut down that that budget. So, sure, so let me give you the just kind before you jump into yeah. your answers. Are they have people lied to you in those conversations? I, you know, you 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 can never answer a question like that uh, 100% uh, for obvious reasons, but um, I don't have any reason to believe that they have okay. um, doing so, of course, would be a very serious crime, uh, almost a sort of constitutional crisis type crime. Um, what they do, though, and this job is hard, what they do, you know, think about surveillance. Surveillance involves, you know, Internet service providers and lots of bits throwing through uh, servers and that kind of thing. Uh, it gets very easy to get lost in the complexity of the technology and the complexity of the law. Right. So so let me give you an example right. of that. And then I have one big example that I've never been able to figure out the answer to. But one big example of that is. Most Americans would say, hey, you know what, we want to um, we, we, we want to get the texts of the 100 people that we think are the most dangerous terrorists in Pakistan. Okay, uh, most Americans would agree that we ought to, we ought to try that because they're texting each other about how they're gonna kill us, right? Uh, the problem is, or let me use email as an example, it's a better example. Okay, go get those emails. The problem is when we go get those emails and we say we wanna look at those emails and I'm not gonna get into the specifics of that, there could be an American on the other side of that, of course, right? So yeah. you know, you get you get ten thousand emails that that are you know CC'd or directed to or from um, a guy who might be a terrorist. 
there's, there's a very high probability that somewhere on that CC list, there's an American, right? And that American should not have their data in a, in a server inside the NSA, right? Um, but they do because that's the nature of the technology. So how do we handle that? And again, I can't get into specifics, but we have really good ways to make sure that the fact that incidentally, they call it incidental collection, incidental collection on American persons, US persons is the term of art, is not used. So um, that's the kind of fiddly stuff that we get into. Um, but, but let me offer one example that I hold up all the time because it's public under Obama. Um, and I'm not sure it has a good answer. Um, President Obama took the decision to kill um, a guy named Anwar al-Awlaki, uh, and I can talk about it because he made it public. Um, and in fact, a United States uh, a, a drone killed uh, Anwar al-Awlaki and his son in Yemen, if I recall correctly. And Anwar al-Awlaki was the guy who, who got the shoe bomber going, and this was a very dangerous guy who had the blood of Americans on his hand, and he was planning lots of bad stuff. Yay, glad he's not amongst the living. Here's the thing. He was a United States citizen. I remember that. He was born in the US. And so while I, I am thrilled that he's no longer plotting, think about that. The president of the United States yeah. decided that an American citizen would die and it happened. That's just got to sit a little uncomfortably with you. You know, I don't, I, I've never, I've been thinking about that for years and I, I, I'm not sure I've ever settled on quite the right answer. Wow. The U.S. has deteriorated in terms of the transparency international standards of corruption. So if you, if you look at those polls, the U.S. is now more corrupt than, say, Germany. Some of that has to do with Congress. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I guess I have to strike a little bit of a partisan tone here. Um, the, the last administration uh, made no bones about their total lack of interest in conflicts of interest and ethical behavior. You know, I mean, the fact that the president owned a hotel just down the road from the White House, well, you can imagine <laughs> one of the ways to get in good with the president of the United States was to spend a lot of money in his hotel. And the list goes on and on and on and on. Um, and then, you know, Americans are treated to the specter of senators and members of Congress trading, you know, on uh, stocks and that sort of thing. So, you know, I guess there's two answers to that question. Number one, you know, the president and the justices of the Supreme Court and members of Congress should be subject to every single law and, and, and ethical uh, ethical regulation that anybody else is. And we should really strive to have regulations and rules that are that are that are a step up uh, above what normal people are subject to. I mean, I've I've sort of rolled around to the point of view that the smart thing to do here is to just stop people in positions of authority from trading individual stocks and that kind of thing. And it's complicated, but anyway, we need to do better. And then Americans need to do better too. You know, I mean, you know, an awful lot of people excused the ethical behavior of the last um, of the last administration. We fell into this thing of like, oh, well, what about the Clinton administration? It makes me nuts. The whataboutism, right? I mean, it's- Whataboutism is really dangerous. Oh my, well, it not only is it dangerous, it's just, it's like, it's like rolling around in the mud, really. I mean, have we, has our moral sensibility been so degraded that we can do anything so long as the other guy did it too? So anyway, all right, I'll stop there. <laughs> so the title of the podcast is Things I Didn't Learn in School. So this whole journey you've been on, spending time in Latin America as a kid, and then the college, and then the, the Goldman Sachs and Congress and everything. So if you step back and you look at your journey so far, and, you know, what are the biggest things that you've learned that you weren't taught in school? I've got one big one for you. And that is something that I talked about earlier. And I think it's the fix to our politics. Um, I think it would 
stop a lot of stupid decisions, uh, and I think it might save your marriage. Um, and 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 that is, we really need to revive humility as a value. Mm. Um, if you think about leaders, corporate CEOs, you know, doctors, senators, you know, the whole training program is get really smart and really good at what you do. And eventually what happens, because we're human, is you start to believe your own press and breathe, breathe your own fumes, <laughs> you know? And let me, let me put some color around the examples I just gave. I've, I've studied hard the Vietnam War, which was obviously a mm. terrible catastrophe, strategic catastrophe. And the Iraq War, frankly, mm-hmm. were we dumb? No, no. We had the smartest people on the planet, people like Paul Wolfowitz and Robert McNamara. These are Mensa guys. Yes. What they lacked was humility. Yes. And, you know, really smart people without humility can be dangerous, as they were in those two cases. And one of the things that I think, just to bring this home back to politics, one of the ways we get out of this terribly tribal moment we're in is something I try to do, which is when I say something with authority and I have the platform to do that, in my mind, I run one line in my own head, which is, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm wrong? Because if you don't run that line, eventually you get your head into this religious, tribal, Yankees versus Red Sox thing. If you cease to be open to the possibility that maybe you're wrong, our politics are going to continue to look like they look. And I mentioned marriages. I, I will tell you, I've been married for, for almost three decades now. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Nothing's quite so good as, uh, as, 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 as you know, keeping a little bit of humility about your own position. Yeah, my wife is a marriage and family therapist. She would, she would agree with you wholeheartedly. And yet, so many of the people who rise these positions of power, I'm not saying you, but many of them, have an ego and frankly a narcissism that seems so toxic and counterproductive relative to that humility that you're encouraging yeah that's uh it's inevitable i mean look i feel it in myself right you know you you get a you get a staff that calls you sir and that is scared to, to tell you when you've when they think you're wrong um and and we also have a culture one of the things I admire about Silicon Valley and the venture capital culture is that they've gotten very good at regarding failure as a learning experience. Mm. You know, there's there's venture capitalists that won't fund people that haven't had a company break on them because it's such an education. All too often, a mistake is perceived as fatal um, instead of as something that can be used constructively to be a better person on, on day two the thing I do for all my guests. Do you have any questions you want to ask me? All right, speed round. Here's uh, here's here's the, the appropriate question on a podcast. Um, I've been thinking a lot. We've talked so much about the nature of our politics. I've been thinking, and by the way, I'm a skeptic that of the old line, oh, well, things are different now, right? You know, yep. I think, you know what is different now is social media. Yes, um, I was going to get to 15, that. 15 years ago, there were no podcasts, right? 20 years ago, there was no Facebook. What I, I know we don't have a lot of time, but like, wh- wh- what do you... What do you think about the future of the way Americans consume information? And is there anything we can do to make it to make it better? It, it is a great question. So first of all, I do believe that big changes in information change our political system and, and how we think. And it takes a while to get inoculated to them. So for instance, I think that there's a, you know, that Hitler used radio very effectively to roust up people. And I think that Trump used Twitter very well. And Twitter is an outrage machine. If you you cannot do shades of gray on Twitter. My thought on that is that to some degree, the system I think is a little bit self-correcting because there is a deep desire to have coherent thought among a certain chunk of the population. And so I think you let that go. 
And then I think that certain of these certain of these publications, they become almost like institutions that are part of the National Trust. So there's there's a question about how you preserve those in terms of the uh, a newspaper that has you know you can almost think of a newspaper as almost like a public library or something like that. So I think that it's it's probably a little bit of a mixture of both those things, like how we communicate, becoming aware of what the about the ability of these new platforms to manipulate our emotions. I think that that'll help settle it down. I think the private sector will search out for new solutions that I do think that some sort of regulation to preserve more objective forms of information, you know, the types of things that led C-SPAN and public television and stuff like that to come into yeah. existence. I think that yeah. those matter. That's a one that's a that's a one sentence answer with no prep. But yeah, no, this is <laughs> along lines. I think it's I think it's critical though, and having spent a lot of time in my previous work in Russia and China, you know, the breakdown of that and also a reminder of how important critical thinking skills are, it's incredibly difficult to teach. Like one of the things that's interesting in both those cultures is unbelievable technical expertise, but very, very weak critical thinking. And I think it, it it's it's cancerous for the political system. Yeah. Yeah. Great answer. Great answer. I, I think you're pointing in exactly the right direction. I I, I really I, I agree with you. You know, we'll 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 accustomize ourselves as humans do to to the nature of our of our of our information, we were talking about how the Soviets sort of reacted to Pravda back in the day, but there's something different, right? I mean, the 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 comp computational power, and the data sorting that is done to figure out how to piss you and me off, you know, <laughs> like yes. the, the emotional manipulation that, that 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 feels new to me, you know. Well, it is, you know, and my son, who, by the way, interned way back when with you, you probably don't remember him, but he's he's in that tech world. And he describes to me what that is like, those algorithms, et cetera, that they're feeding. It's a little bit like when you and I were growing up, I remember that the great evil, at least in my household, was overexposure to TV. Like my father was very aware that TV could somehow weak, too much exposure to it could weaken. And now I see this already growing. Like when my kids were young, I didn't even know, frankly, what Facebook is. So now it's part of parental education, all this stuff. So I think that we'll catch up with it. But when you get rapid shifts in technology and AI is the next one, yeah, I think it's very disorienting for a lot of people. And I think that it can create both wealth, but also instability. And you know, you really hope that our civilization pulls together to hold the best parts of it to allow us to continue that journey. Well, from, uh, from your lips to God's ears. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Awesome, a lot of fun. Thanks for the conversation. All right, great, bye-bye. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We're genuinely touched by all the support. If you want to see more of this type of content, sign up to my Substack and become a paid subscriber that helps supports the team. Uh, you could also submit a review to Apple Podcasts, which draws other listeners to this. If you have any questions, you can email me, paul at paulpodolsky.com and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Thanks so much. Today's podcast was produced and edited by Dave Manahan.